John Ellis. Give him a big round of applause. I mean, come on, guys. He's awesome. Hey, isn't he awesome? Hey? I mean, that haircut and everything, he rocks it. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. But it's beautiful because, you know, the whole tan goes all the way. It's not like you've been wearing a hat or anything. You only tan and then it's white. It's beautiful. It's just perfect. But I've known John a very, very long time. And I just want to say, John, you're amazing. What you see is what you get. You're always the same. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I love you. Well, how do you even begin to <laughs> so sit very quietly here? <laughs> I did say it would be a day of surprises, didn't I? Yes. John, welcome. I'm actually going to pray first because John's a wild card and we need prayer. <laughs> Just kidding, John. Father, thank you for this man. Thank you for the impact he's had on so many people's lives. Thank you for the wisdom and the life experience that he has to share with us. Thank you that his words um, are going to resonate with so many people. And thank you that with his words there will be healing, there will be restoration, there will be dreams. We thank you for him and bless his time in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just joking, John. You know, Lisa didn't give you such a hard time today, so I had to a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so John is the first man ever to be on the wholehearted stage speaking. He's very brave. I said, do you not mind speaking to 800 ladies or 600 ladies, whatever? And he's like, no. Who would be? I mean, this is, yes, no, I won't say anything more. Um. (laughs) Anyway, I want to tell you all that. It's such a God thing that he's here because um, it's it's a strange set of events, which I want to tell you quickly. I was reading some posts by some people that I follow on Facebook on some interesting topics. And I came across um, a, a comment that said something about something that John had tried to do that I was like very interested in. So I have this like little list of names in a book where I'm like, I've got to meet with that person got to, and I write it down. So I added John to my list, thinking I will hunt him down and I will find him and I'll talk to him. Okay. I said, I do. I'm a bit of a, yeah, anyway. So one morning I'm having tea with my dear friend, Debbie Churchman. It's her birthday and there's a whole lot of ladies. We're sitting at Mayfair. And uh, it was actually only three days later after I'd, you know, put him on my hit list. And, um, and, and Sheldon and I had traveled through uh, together from the North Coast and he was running errands and stuff. And he said, just wait at Mayfield till I'm done. So I had a half hour window because the tea finished and in walks John. And I'm like, on a silver platter. Hi, John. No, he wasn't on a silver platter. I'm saying the opportunity was on a silver platter. <laughs> Oh dear. So, <laughs> so I said, hey John, are you on your own? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, can I join you? I mean, opportunist of note. He's like, sure, go for it. So, sorry, because I have needed to speak to you. As if like, stuff that he's got an agenda. You know, he just wanted a peaceful cup of coffee and a breakfast or something and now I'm invading. Anyway, we had a really fascinating conversation. And I remember getting home and saying to my husband like, flip. I feel so free after the conversation. I'm actually scared. I'm almost scared. It was just like you opened up some things to me that were just magical. And um, I remember saying to Joel, 
if I become less loving, something's gone wrong. <laughs> just hold me to that. Because um, it was just a whole new perspective. And I hope that you'll get some of that from John today. Um, and, then, and then a few weeks later, I was like, um, I think I should, you know, Debbie actually said, what about John for wholehearted? And, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to meet with him, but I'm not going to tell him why. I just said, you know, do, do you ever feel like you have something that you might want to share? But I didn't tell him about this conference because you know you've got to have an easy out hey, when you meet with people. So if they know that they might be asking, then they aren't. It's a problem. So I, was, I made it very vague and generic. And I said, God, will you please get him to confirm that he should be there by saying a few key words? And he said them. He didn't know that. No. no. Well, he did it yesterday. But <laughs> okay. So um, it is really great to have you, John, and you, you certainly are speak, going to be speaking into a topic that I think is so relevant and so necessary and, and has caused so much pain. I mean, there's a couple of things you're going to talk about, but yeah, it's, it's awesome to have you. Thank you for saying yes, and uh, thank you for uh, blessing us with your, your yes. Thank you. Um, and uh, so now I just um, also needed to say that John and I shared a history we didn't know this, but do you know that John actually used to be at the Olive Tree Church? Many of you don't know this, but Olive Tree Church is, I think, about 25 years old. And John, you were there about how many years ago? Yeah, uh, 96. 96. 23 years ago. Yeah. You're old. <laughs> <laughs> Only kidding, because I was actually there 18 years ago. 20 years, 18 years. So I think we just missed each other, hey? Yeah. But um, it's just so interesting that we have the same kind of, the same foundation, the same Faith Foundation, tell us about your experience of it. Uh, so, '96, Olive Tree was still at St. John's Ambulance Hall. Do you know where that is? Is it still there? No. No. Yeah. No, In 1996, Olive Tree used to be in another building, which is interesting because it's not there anymore, it's here. And I, uh, <laughs> uh, somebody took me to that church, I was a brand new Christian, and I went to this church, and it was the first time I'd got chosen to go to a particular church on purpose, because normally you go because your mom drags you there, right? But this is the first time I made a conscious choice to go to a church, and it was half everything was half Hebrew, and it was it was Messianic church in those days. So um, I, I had a whole new, brand new perspective on Christianity that was half at least half Hebrew, which our faith is. Let's be honest, and I, I'm glad I got in at a very early le- a stage in my Christianity with that as my foundation, and. It, to this day, uh, I think I mentioned this the other day, the reason the band I formed became known as Tree is because of the olive tree. The, the word tree came from my exposure to the concept of tree as a uh, something of shade and shelter, um, the tree of life. That was, and that, that came through to me from olive tree. And so the legacy of that went all the way through into the band name. And So I'm, I, there's a great... I was baptized into this church, so it, there's a, a great symmetry to be back here again with you here today in a different building. <laughs> you will notice that I'm clutching my notes because um, 
I typically like to know what's going to happen in these interviews, okay? And so I met with John, bullied him into about three or four meetings, and um, we spoke on tangents, like better than the best book club you've ever been to. And so if I didn't have some direction here, because he didn't want to be scripted and he didn't want direction, but at least I have a little small handle on some of the things we'll get out. Um, we might, if we didn't have this, we might end up talking about Jurassic Park or the Titanic, and I don't think ladies came here for, for that stuff. So, um, yeah, let's... let's Let's go. But can, I, can I just say two things before we start? Yes. So there are two things I need, to, a disclaimer. For, uh, one of them is a disclaimer. The other one is to say what I should have said yesterday morning, which was Happy Women's Day, which I did not say, and I feel just so, such a man. <laughs> I mean, it's the ultimate man thing to do. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> right? Hey, there's men here today. No wonder it feels different. <laughs> the other thing is, this is my disclaimer. I, I was slightly deformed at birth. I had both feet in my mouth. And I've spent 47 years trying to extract both feet. I've managed to get one out. Um, but the other one seems to find its way back in regularly. So here's the deal. Whatever you hear from me today, I, I tend to generalize a lot. I lecture English for a living. So I... I talk a lot of nonsense, a lot. And I really need to say up front that if there's something I say or the way I say it that seems to you slightly um, stirry or it's something that gets on your skin a little bit the wrong way, half of me is glad because I, I, want, I want to, we all need to go toward God with our brains as well as our hearts. And that's important to me. The other thing is, I'm just, this is a blanket sorry for any. Thing I say today that will just be untoward. Is, sure. that, a, is, that, a good, is that a good enough disclaimer? I think I'm now convinced that you're going to say something right. Well, it's just because now I can say anything. No. And everyone will be fine. <laughs> Do we have a mute button on John's remote? <laughs> I mean, Mike. Mike. Okay. Um, John, can you just, uh, just so that we can get to know you a little bit, first of all, you have got kids. How many kids? Tell us about them. Yes, I have three kids. As you all know, with those kids, it feels like I have eight. Um, I have, my son lives with me in Durban. He's at Northwood, which, as you all know, is the best school in the world. And my two daughters are with their mother in Cape Town, and I miss them incredibly. But I have three beautiful children, and I'm a very, very blessed, very single man. <laughs> and, um, but yes, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Durbanite, born and raised, uh, very proud to be. I lived in America for many years, and when I came back, to South Africa, obviously the first place to come back to was your, is your hometown. And I had that same thing of people saying to me, why did you come back? This is, two, this is 10 years ago. It's terrible now. South Africa's got you know, all those people. I love this place. I love Durban and it's getting better and better. Um, we love Durban, the city stories. It, there's so much happening here and I'm very proud to call this home. So I'm, I'm sure there's at least a few other people here who feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> John, why don't you tell us a little bit about your upbringing because so, so much about our childhood shapes who we are as adults. Yeah, I was thinking about that question yesterday when you asked me and then last night after we spoke and I thought, this is a women's conference. If you're just interviewing a man, yeah, I could tell you stories about those things but there must be some way to answer that question in a way that... Makes it makes you guys feel like you came to a women's conference, <laughs> and not to. Do you know what I'm saying? 
Yes, because there's that awful word being bandied around at the moment, mansplaining. Mansplaining. Do you know what this is, ladies? Mansplaining is when a man tries to tell you your experience of reality. <laughs> yes, like, like, oh, I know it's hard being pregnant. Okay, no, not that's a bad example. But it's, it's, it's men trying to explain things that they could never really have a handle on. It's a thing that gets thrown around a lot on social media now, and it's not a favorable comment. But I, I brought you here knowing that you wouldn't mansplain us. So proceed. <laughs> this is decidedly different from yesterday. So, um, uh, what did you ask me? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, about your mum and dad. Yes. Um, I said this yesterday, and uh, again, something else I'm glad I, I have a chance to redo today. Um, I love both my parents. I have a love, beautiful mum and a lovely dad. And but I'm I'm a product of a mother. I'm one of those men that wouldn't be who I am without a without the mum I had. And I'm not just saying it because it's Women's Day. Um, South African men, in particular, have, are, are, are afflicted with a very old-fashioned conservative manliness that we have that we told we have to uphold and especially during apartheid when we grew up in that very militant era and we finished school we were straight to the army and had to go and be a man and to some degree uh, South African men are still in that headspace in that emotional space but I was raised by um, my dad was a very ambitious guy and he was gone a lot uh, and my mom a very creative person she danced and she played piano and she and so I grew up with this interesting balance of ambitious father and creative mom. That's a weird balance. So some of the stuff, I, whatever, I, we all struggle with things we, we experience in our, in our childhood. For me, the, the struggle was the very driven uh, ambition that comes from that aggressive male ego. And then this beautiful creativity that is so often associated with femininity. So a good balance, but um, but the, yeah, I'm, I'm still not. Sh- I'm still trying to work out at this age, because it's so old, where that balance is. But I, I, I definitely would feel that uh, the fact that I'm here today in an in environment talking about God and, and Jesus and these beautiful things is because of my mother. My dad, to, to this day, remains a an atheist who's not really willing to think below two steps in the argument. He just writes it off. But my mom is the one who prayed for us, told us about Jesus, told us about, the, about God when we were kids, when a scab would heal on your knee, that's Jesus healing your knee. You know, those kind of those beautiful ways of approaching reality. So when, in my 20s, I had a um, sort of emotional experience which led me to pursue some spiritual uh, solutions. God's the first person I turned to because of that grounding my mother had given me. So for me, moms, I said this yesterday, men think they rule the world, women know they do. Right? And that's not me being uh, very, very wise <laughs> to say that at a women's conference. <laughs> I think moms change the world. And I'm grateful for mine. John, you don't have to worry about offending those three. They are unoffendable. So just proceed as if there's only women here. Don't worry. 
They're amazing. Um, can you God. just tell us how that kind of super ambitious dad side of you and the creative side of you played out? And also, like, you being a first child, how did that all kind of culminate together? Um, do you know, do some of you know the combination of being the, that, that first res- resp- overly responsible child, perfectionist, very, there's a drivenness that comes with that anyway. Then with a, with a parent who, so my dad was a headmaster of a school, and then he became a, a member of parliament with the DA for many years. So he was in the public eye a lot. And as, a, as the oldest child, you look to your, that, I look to my dad as, as a role model, and I, what you, part of you wants to replicate what you see your dad achieving. So there's all this drivenness and, and ambition and ego, which as you get older, you, you recognize as ego and drivenness and ambition, which always, I think, comes from insecurity. But we don't see that as young people. We just see a parent who inspires us. Um, so as a child, I almost feel like I, I, I was going to be drawn, sucked into this very, very driven place of, and as an eldest child also being perfectionist and, and responsible. And, so that's exhausting. That's why in my early 20s I feel like it all just crashed because you can only keep up that, that pace of ambition and the drive that comes from your ego and wanting to achieve and succeed. Those are good things, but they're exhausting because I don't really believe after all this time that they are natural things. I think God can use them. But ambition and drivenness and ego to achieve, I, I don't think those are natural things for, for human beings to carry. They're heavy and they exhaust us. And part of our exhaustion as, as adults, and we all know what that feels like, trying to be the best parent, the best spouse, the best at work, the best sibling, the best ch- uh, daughter or son after so many years, all that can create a sense of exhaustion plus a sense of I'm not worthy because I never seem to achieve what I'm expected to achieve. I don't know if anyone here can relate to that. That's not a male or female thing. It's just a person thing. I don't think it's gender specific. In fact, it's probably worse for women because there's an added element of, well, you're a second class citizen anyway because you're a woman because it's a man's world. Men don't seem to have that, that missing thing. Men just assume that there's an, men have an entitlement of, well, I'm a man. I, I get there first. I see that a lot. But um, yeah, I, I, I sort of came into my 20s exhausted. <laughs> And I don't know how many other people feel like that. And I, and I spend my life in front of 20-something-year-olds lecturing them at university. And they're all, half of them are, there's, when they do drug raids, they find so much weed and so, much, so many chemicals. And we, we took one of the students aside and said, what are you doing? You're a 19, 20-year-old student. What on earth do you really have that's so hectic in your life that you need to escape with all this stuff? And the answer was the pressure. I feel so pressured, pressure to achieve. At that age, I mean, that's, that's quite hectic. So, so already at that age, turning to other things to try and alleviate the pressure of expectation from society. It's not an easy place to live in. And I don't know how successful I've been in escaping it, but it's there. And there is a way out, but we'll get there. So you were trying to, to get, you know, super ambitious and become, I suppose, a famous musician just on your own steam, your own thunder. And, and what changed? I, in my mid-twenties, I had a, for a bunch of reasons, I, I, my life just 
turned around and I turned to God and uh, went, but I, I feel like I really encountered God. It wasn't just a mental decision. And in that moment, it felt such a release to let go of the things I was ambitious for. Because for me, the transformative part of meeting God is you can finally stop being the person you have been told you should be. Do you know that thing? The person they expect you to be, they. The person you've been uh, pretending to be for so long. The person that you've been, you've been forming to achieve an identity that they tell you you should be that will please mom and dad or teachers or whatever the most. And I met God, I felt like I could let go of that and it was a, such a massive relief. Um, I think, I don't know if that's something that everyone can encounter, but that's what, I think that's what God, God holds for us, that same transformative um, gift. You can stop being the person, you don't have to be the person you thought you had to be. You can be the person you were born to be. That's a huge, huge difference. And I'll just say this now, and you can get to it later, but I, in my experience, the only way to the, that place is through, is down. <laughs> through defeat and, and failure and other horrible words we don't like talking about. But let's get to that just now. Yeah, I'll stop talking there. No. So... John, it was after encountering God and, and now you'd kind of given up all your ambition and then suddenly God does a new thing. Yeah. Tell us. <laughs> well, being a creative person, the first thing I wanted to do when I, after, after I decided to become a monk was, since I had the hairstyle already, <laughs> the, the idea was to, you feel so excited with this new discovery, you want to tell everyone. And the, and the way I communicated in my 20s was with music, writing songs. So I started writing all these songs about this new spiritual realities I'd, I'd suddenly encountered. But I was very embarrassed about them because no one, really, no one I knew spoke like that. I had a book about Jesus on my bedside table and I turned it upside down so my brother wouldn't see it because it was a bit, he'd laugh at me, you know. It's very self-conscious about it because there was something ooh about Jesus. <laughs> it wasn't real, it was, you know. We don't live in a spiritual world. So when you turn to, when you say you have some spiritual beliefs, people look at you a bit odd. I don't care anymore, but at the time it felt like it. But I just started writing these songs and suddenly all the lyrics started changing away from how miserable I was to how happy I was. And using, using words like Jesus and God. And, uh, but there was no intention to do anything with them. It was just a way of expressing my newfound sense of being, you know. Later in that year, 96, well, uh, during my time with the Olive Tree, after attempting to write some Hebrew songs, <laughs> I uh, I've met a few other musicians who said, well, you know, let's just get, we're not going to be musicians anymore, we're Christians now, so we don't have to worry about ambition and drive, and but let's just get together and play music anyway. Suddenly it's 20 years later and I've been around the world and back with those songs, and you go, how did that happen? That process is very strange, but that's another conversation. But the point is, the, um, using your creativity to express not religious things, but express your own meeting with those religious, spiritual things. So a transformation ta- takes place in you, and you immediately want to just t- turn to the person next to you and say, guess what I found? Do you know that feeling? Yeah. 
Awesome. So you, you had an Outreach 63. There were three of you, right? Yes. Yeah. And I'm um, an American doing just such, such a success story and such a, a, a fast journey to, to where probably you'd hoped to be but never thought you could get no, to. No. And, um, and your experience of that whole world was, you tell us, it was not what you thought it would be at all. Yeah, um, very early on in the, in the music making thing, I, I encountered um, Matt Redman. Are you familiar with Matt and his music? Uh, Soul Survivor came here to Durban a few times. It was very special, and I, I just encountered his music as a young believer, and I was a fan. And he he kind of took Tree under his wing, and we it took us to England, and it was very special. But um, we made a, a couple of albums, and there were a few songs on there that got onto that the mainstream charts here what it was still called five, Radio 5 no it was, it was 5 FM by then back in the day when they still played songs with guitars in them <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> and it, it was weird for me there was, it was, this, there was such a, a sense of God, God's favor on this thing and I was in the most unambitious place you could possibly imagine you've never seen a, a, a musician less interested in, in all the things it took to be to have a successful career. I completely withdrew. I wrote the songs, recorded them, and then just sat back with it. Miserably unambitious. And that's where all these incredible things happened. Later on, when I, for, for a bunch of reasons, decided to try and embrace it and put my arms around it, that's when it started falling apart. It was very interesting. I look back on it now and I go, the, the best times we had, the most incredible things that were, that, are, that were achieved in the industry and around the world were things when I wasn't paying attention. And as soon as I try to embrace it and, yes, God, and own it, become a good steward of it, it started crumbling in my hands. Very, it's very, I'm, still, I'm still trying to process that. It's very interesting. But, yeah, there were some incredible moments and we ended up in America, which this is where I need to be careful. Okay. Uh, we arrived in just, America. Just remember, he generalizes. So when he says USA, he's not talking about all Americans. Got it. Most Americans. <laughs> John. <laughs> uh, we arrived in America just as George Bush Jr. was about to become president. Do you remember that? And it was, this is the end of 2000. Um, some incredible things happened. We signed some contracts and started touring the country, uh, and it was incredible to be a South African band in that space, especially from little old Durban. Bands from this country and success stories happen in Joburg and sometimes in Cape Town, but not Durban. Durban's a fishing village. Everyone knows each other. So I, I'm still to this day proud that something South African went and, and impacted some people around the world from Durban. I love that. <laughs> Um, in September of 2001 we happened to land in New York City on September the 10th and the morning of the 11th uh, we happened to be in New York City on the, the focus of history in that moment we were right in the middle of it it was an incredible incredible place to be in and space to be in and time to be in America. Um, you, you almost forget that you, what, what you're doing. You're just so focused on the fact that you're suddenly in the center of a world event. Um, beyond that, I always feel like that moment was the moment where 
had in a weird way um, the music industry shifted and never became it never was the same again and 363 lost some traction so I always felt like Osama Bin Laden owed me a career <laughs> we had a whole bunch of things lined up to be to be become superstars and in that moment everything got cancelled all the music industry stuff in New York City shut down and they shut the city down and we, everyone left and we never really got there again so um that's it's easy to blame failure on terrorists, you know. Uh, so America, we were involved in what is still known as the Christian music, and I hate to use this word, Christian music industry. I mean, those words shouldn't exist in the same sentence. Christian industry, a multi-billion-dollar entertainment industry for Christians. They'll never use the word entertainment, but I'm sorry if you if you even vaguely think a little bit critically about what comes out of that industry, so much of it is distinctly, conservatively, culturally American. As much as Coca-Cola or Disney or Netflix, there is a certain flavor of Christianity that, that we encountered in where we were in the, the southern states of America. Conservative Baptist culture. But we didn't know that. We were naive little South Africans, thinking that all people who professed love for Jesus all loved Jesus all the time. Because that's what they said they did. And the reality is a lot different. And um, I think that was the heartbreak of my life to, to, to discover over the following 10 years that, that, there is a, that there was things were not quite what they said on the label. And... So I, by the, at the end of that journey, I, would, I left America and left 363 and left the whole thing with a real sense of failure. Came back to South Africa with a, with a sense of something having been stolen, having lost something, uh, lost some faith, lost God, lost my handle on what I had, may have thought God was, lost my handle on what I felt God may have said I should be doing with my life. There was a real sense of loss. And then beyond that, in South Africa, over the next few years, I found God stripping, not God, but things being stripped from my life systematically. My marriage, my house, uh, money, career. I even, even two guitars were stolen from me. I mean, the car. <laughs> and after you spend 10 years in America where the, the culture is build yourself your own empire, to suddenly find that empire in tatters. It's quite a thing. And there are some people in this world who, who achieve and lose and achieve and lose and seem to just carry on with that sense of, well, no matter, we'll just keep building. But for me, it was quite shattering. I, I, to, to lose what you've spent so much time building, it's quite a setback. And that's where I feel uh, the foot and mouth disease didn't serve me very well. Because I tend to say what I'm feeling in the moment, which you should never do if you're sitting in front of a newspaper reporter. If, uh, <laughs> but I said a few things about what I thought the state of God may have been, or, or church, or my, my own faith. And, and I deeply compromised my the perception of who I had been in 363 up to that point in, the, in terms of the public eye. And we'll get onto that just now. But the whole process of 363 and achieving and 
international touring and all the glamour that that's apparently comes with it, trying to be married and then raise kids in that environment, it was it was very very tricky. And um, I'm glad to say now I can I am the person I am today because of those things. But at the time it was very very difficult to live through, and not at all the romantic glamorous thing that we assume it is. People still say, oh, well, you were in a band in America, in a tour bus touring the world. That sounds incredible. And it really isn't. You know, trudging through a, a rainy car park in the middle of nowhere in America with a, with a box full of 363 t-shirts after weeks of no sleep and bad food. And you're going... God, so I'm a t-shirt salesman now. <laughs> because the American thing is so driven by, you, you can go to, you play a concert, and I remember someone saying this to me, if ministry happens at a concert, that's good, but you're there to make money. That's what came from the industry to me. One of the major guys said to me, if ministry happens and the Holy Spirit shows up, God bless you, brother. But, you, but make sure that you cap, capitalize on the moment. Make sure your t-shirts look good. Make sure your merchandise stand at the back is ready because when, when Americans are touched by the spirit, they want to buy a memento, <laughs> which is generalizing. Can you imagine that? When people are touched by the spirit, they want to w- leave with a memento. So sell them a t-shirt and a CD and a pin that says, I love Tree 63. And that's not what I got saved for. And somewhere in that moment, I realized... I might be in the wrong job. <laughs> and things started declining for me in my heart. But, and I hate, I hate to say this, um, things have got a bit better, but generally the music industry, the Christ, what I see coming out of there now and some of the people I still speak to in Nashville, um, we don't learn our lesson. There are still things that are deeply problematic in terms of how we represent Christ, how we put up Christ for sale on CDs and T-shirts and books. There's something deeply problematic about the industry that's built up around this beautiful thing we call, that we live, all of us here today are here for. The Holy Spirit is not for sale. Christ is free. That's what, that was the message I got when I became a Christian. It's free and it's beautiful and it's available to everyone all the time. It is not for sale. It is not packageable. It's not marketable. And yet we live in the most marketable culture and human history and I hate this I don't know if I said this to you but it makes me angry because Christ was the only thing that saved my life and to find Christ so treated so miserably by, by the culture and society we live in makes me mad and I'm not sure what to do about that because what I tried to do in that, to try and change that I feel like it didn't really work but I, I, I made an attempt it didn't really work but so I'm not sure what the solution is it definitely isn't more songs <laughs> more t-shirts <laughs> I'm not sure uh, I don't have any answers for that but I, I, I can see where things have gone wrong and I, man, I just wish I wish we could change it somehow I, I wish there wasn't I pray for a new generation of people who go enough now 
Jesus can't be this. There must be more to God than this. Do you know what I'm saying? John, we're running out of time, so I'm going to... Two more questions. Um, the first. Everyone's been fascinated about your whole journey with church, you know, because you were 363 and you, you, you had such an impact in people's spiritual walks. And, um, and it was fascinating to me that after having met with John and having heard his story, um, that I knew very clearly that John never lost his faith in God, but only in the church. And so when I said, oh, you know, John's coming to the conference, he's like, oh, is he a Christian again? I was like, no, he never, he never stopped being. He's in, they're like, no, 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 he definitely lost his faith in God. And I'm like, no, but I've heard it from him. He didn't. Um, yeah, just, just quickly, if you can just tell us, you know, the truth. The truth. <laughs> Your truth. In 2019, the truth is the, the least <laughs> likely thing to come out of. We, we live in weird times, yeah? Nothing is, it seems like everything is, just, everything is fake and we never know who we can trust anymore. I mentioned the president's name yesterday, this American president, and I, I probably shouldn't today. Yeah, I said to him, don't say the name again, so now he's trying to get around it another way. But we're not going to talk about presidents or politics, John. No, we're not, but okay. we do live in a culture of untruthiness. <laughs> more and more, and we don't know who to trust, because we can't go on Facebook anymore. Uh, we can't look on social media, we don't know who to trust. And especially Christian rock stars. There's, there is something really dangerous about becoming a, some kind of public personality in the name of Jesus. And it's something that every pastor, or reverend, any, anyone who's itinerant speaker would struggle with in terms of you immediately are, are seen to be an authority on, on, on spiritual matters. And the reality is, and Nat would be the first one to admit this, we're all still seekers. Always. You never stop being a seeker and, and become an authority. But the perce- public perception is, oh, well, you're, a, you're, in a, you're, you're a well-known Christian musician. He, he, you, immediately you, you represent Jesus on earth. You're basically a musical pope. <laughs> <laughs> and you should know better because you have made a difference in my life. So you have, you have some kind of spiritual authority in my life. So therefore, I expect this from you. And when we see humanity coming out, really messy, broken humanity, we don't want that. That's, too, that's, that's disappointing to us. We wanted you to be better than that. It's not a natural place. I don't think, I personally, someone was talking to me about this yesterday. I don't think, I, don't, I wonder really, and I'm just speaking aloud now, if God really can use someone's fame and fortune for his glory. Because I, I don't think fame and fortune are natural human things. They can be easily be achieved because we live in a capitalist society and if you plug this song into this CD, it'll sell this many, you'll make this much money. It's not your fault, it just happens. But the problem is now you are famous. That's a very, very uh, tricky place to be in because of how society immediately views you as something different, elevated, better. So when you do have a very, very human Comfort break. Good one. Good one. <laughs> A very human comfort break. It's hard to recover from. Much harder because you are expected to have known better. And so, yeah, I, I'm somebody who is. 
I don't know. I don't know. I'm somebody trying to figure out my journey toward God the way all of us in this room are, all the time. Uh, it's sometimes it's there's a there's a magnifying glass on it, and then that's 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 not easy. So that's why I've withdrawn. I've actually I don't make music anymore. I haven't written a note of music for five years. I don't longer consider myself an artist. Um, I don't record music. I don't. And there's, and there's a lot of freedom in withdrawing. Because I've, I've been able to just discover new things about God that I could never have trying to package them on a song. You know. Um, yes, anyway, I'm ranting on, sorry. Um, John, basically, I want to answer for John, if you don't mind. Am I allowed to do that? John didn't lose his faith in God. He just lost his faith, sadly, in, in Christianity, a lot of what he saw in the church, really. Um, and I think a lot of us can... can um, What's that word? Um, identify, identify and relate with a lot of that. Where I think this is the integrity thing is just that. That's the thing. Sorry. Yes. Yes, we talked about this yesterday, and, you, and at some point we go, where does integrity fit into this? Mm. And I was, earlier I was saying, yeah, we live in an untruthiness, but also we live in a time where we, not knowing who to trust, we feel we live in an in integrous times. We don't know if, where integrity exists anymore. We were told decades ago that in, integrity existed in the, in the highest office in the land, presidents and police chiefs and what the other teachers, headmasters, headmistresses, the leaders of society had integrity. We could trust them. But if anything, in the last 10 years, we've seen that are completely eroded. We no longer know who we can trust. Uh, pastors fall, presidents get elected who shouldn't be. Brexit happens. Um, we, we look around us and go, can we, can we, who can we trust? And we want to trust God, but if God comes through the mouth of someone we don't trust, right? It's hard. So for me, there's an internal journey that needs to happen that, that is not something that's often spoke about. We as Westerners are always looking at the external. And this is a challenge for the church, I think. Not this church in this building. The church how to internalize some of these beautiful things we already know experientially and go on a, on a deep inner journey because the, the witness of God in, internally is the one thing we can trust. But the, the challenge of our lives is to access that. And that's the journey you can only go on individually. So there's good news, but it requires your own sense of diving into it yourself. Why am I saying this? Oh, integrity. Integrity is salvageable in this day and age. Just because we see people being really bad at it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because we see people being shocking in the, in the ways they sell it to us and package it and let us down does not mean it doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I got a bit disenchanted with church, but I, I, but I didn't... Yeah, I mean, everyone gets disenchanted. We all know what that feels like. But there is an internal way. There's, an inter- there's something internal to encounter God. Because God literally is the only source of integrity in our lives. And that's, that is, that's good news, I think. Mm. Don't you? Yeah. 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 And... Um, yeah, John. John is on uh, on a journey back to find a place that feels like home, right? Because you recognise a value in in church and oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Mark, Mark. 
Mike, Mike. <laughs> I don't know. That, that, that doesn't mean to say that there's, there's no integrity in church. It, if anything, church is the one place that is trying. That's why it's so valuable. Can you imagine a society with no churches? As flawed as, as some of them, as some of us all are, at least we're making an effort. And that's, this, is the, this is why the church is God's idea on earth. A sanctuary to come and seek those things that are missing outside of the church. So, yeah, getting dis- disillusioned with one church doesn't mean you're disillusioned with all churches. That, that's something I've had to learn too, you know. Um, so, so God bless these things. Women's conferences like this, with people like this, who are just going, there has to be more. Let's hold a conference. Let's do some worship. Let's let's talk together. Let's meet together. Let's find a way to to fix this thing that is so beautiful and and needs and needs to be fixed. We do it ourselves, and women do it better because I said this yesterday. Let me be very careful here. It's never been a scarier time to be a male than in 2019, right, guys? <laughs> we live in the era of hashtag Me Too, Harvey Weinstein, all these dreadful things that, that are coming out. And the, the narrative happening outside of these walls is men have broken things. The other narrative is it's time for women to fix them. That's a very interesting narrative to, be, to listen to and be part of. Because it's not totally true. It's a massive generalization. But what is the role of women in the future? Interesting, right? It's, and the last people who will know that answer to that question is men. <laughs> it seems like a, a new, a, a wind of beautiful change that's, been, that's, that's over the earth. That is, that, um, I don't even know how to put it in words. I'm the wrong gender. But... There's something new happening. And so for me to be part of this conference and be here and, and take this massive risk of being the only man on stage, um, I wish I could communi- communicate what I've seen here yesterday and today to other men I know. Um, I don't know if I have the right language for it yet. But this is where change happens. These kinds of things. I wonder, if the, I wonder aloud if these similar things happen to the same level of integrity at men's conferences. I wonder. I, wonder, I need to go and see what men are talking about in their groups. You know? But this is very powerful, and I'm very, very, very pleased to be here. And yeah, it's been very, very powerful. So thank you. John, thank you so much for sharing so vulnerably and honestly with us. And John is actually, this is the best part, um, you know, to sing your song is an act of integrity. To communicate what's inside you and share it with the world outside is so integrous. And it's so wonderful that Audrey shared her story with song. And um, Susie even obliged and sang of it. And um, John is now going to sing to us. He also writes poetry. Please go and like him on Instagram, John Ellis Poetry. His stuff is fantastic. And I tried to get him to recite a poem yesterday and he wouldn't. But he is going to sing for us. So, um, John, thank you. Thank you for blessing us. And... um,
Good. One of the first um, songs I wrote as a, as a fairly new Christian was a song that Tree 63 eventually recorded and people have got to know it over the years and I'm grateful for it, but it's a very, very personal song um, that I, don't, I wasn't sure it should have been recorded. It was, a, it was a personal, almost like a journal entry because I felt how God changed me very deeply. It wasn't just uh, I've gone from being a non-believer to a believer now. There was a deep sense of hope that came with it. And I felt very grateful. And I still do. And so when I sing this song, I know I can still mean these lyrics. They're not just songs of a, of a, lyrics of a song I wrote 20 years ago. It's the same guy. With maybe with a different level of things to be grateful for, but still grateful. So I, I hope... Some of you may know this. I hope that you can relate. Look what you've done for me Your blood has set me free you've done for me I haven't been the same ever since that day I called your name Yahweh, Yahweh look what you've done for me what can I do
Thanks. Uh, this other song, every band has one hit. <laughs> Katrina and the Waves had Walking on Sunshine. Who else? The Beatles had a few. <laughs> but Tree 63, this is one of the earliest songs that uh, I wrote. I wrote the lyrics for this on in a combi on the way back from Zimbabwe. In the dead of night. you can sing along. <laughs> Don't get too funky in church. Taking up out of the world, taking up with just the world. Something invisible has become so beautiful. I know I am born again, but I'm stumbling. Thanks, everybody.
Isn't he fantastic? Thank you, John. Thank you. I'm just saying, you're probably going to get a lot of churches saying they need a worship leader. I think you owe me one or two gigs up at the North Coast, at least. Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, Ladies, we're going to have another... We're going to have another comfort break now. What time would we like the ladies back? What's the time now? Three. We're back on schedule. How did you do that? You grew time. (laughs) He's amazing. He also grows time. You have half an hour comfort break. Please remember to keep the the hugs going, the kisses going, the bum pinching, all of that. Lots of love. And I really do need to ask you one thing. You need to be back here at 3.30, like seated and ready. We have a dramatic start. Don't trickle in like sloths like you did after lunch. It was deeply disappointing. Come back on the double. (laughs) 